0: Once again, can a person lose their salvation or can they not? We're going to discuss that today on Bible Study Podcasts.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Bible Study Podcasts.org. This is Toby. And Today is Wednesday, May the 23rd. I want to apologize right off the bat here that Matt didn't get uh, the podcast on alleged Bible contradictions out yesterday on Tuesday. What happened is his wife's grandmother passed away, so he actually wasn't able to get home in time to record it. He's actually going to be posting it tomorrow, Thursday, uh, the 24th. So definitely be keeping uh, Matt's family in your prayers, and look for his podcast on alleged contradictions in Scripture tomorrow. As I had mentioned on Monday, of course, I've been getting a lot of feedback from you guys about last week's podcast about the security of salvation, and I want to address some of the questions that I've been given. So today we're doing basically Eternal Security Part 2. And uh, this is just based on some objections or some, some difficulties that uh, that some of you were having. And of course, I'm not going to say that I have all the answers. But what I am going to say is, you know, that I will try to make some sense of uh, of my theology, of my interpretation of Scripture, and uh, hopefully, you know, we can all make some sense of this and gain a deeper understanding of God's Word. As a result, let's go ahead and just start this off with a quick word of prayer. This isn't going to be a long podcast today, but uh, as always, we should start off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today and for every day, Lord, for making every day new and for loving us the way that you do, Father. We ask that you would deepen our understanding of you, that you would deepen our understanding of what you have revealed in scripture for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start off with one email that I got from somebody. He wrote, "What about Revelation 15 and 16? Please, I need help real bad on this one." And uh, so let's go ahead and and just you know taking a uh, just a brief look at chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation. You know, I'm not going to go through and, and read all of it. There's a lot to read there, but you can go ahead and read through that yourselves. Uh, basically, l- let me start with this. You know, The church is mentioned in chapters one through three in the book of Revelation, but after that, what we see is that the church really, you know, it kind of stops being mentioned. Why? Well, you know if we take the whole bible into consideration and everything that's uh that's been prophesied about the end times particularly with the book of daniel uh we find out you know i think that jesus i think this is the point that jesus comes to save his bride from the wrath of god that's about to be poured out across the face of the earth and as you know you know that's what you see throughout the book of revelation is just you know wrath and tribulation and and hard times but, you know, in fact, we don't even see any mention of the church until chapter 19, when Christ returns. Now, chapters 15 and 16 are about the seven bowls of God's wrath that are being poured out across the earth. So I'm not sure how this relates to uh, to the security of salvation. But I will say this, there will be believers in this time. Uh, they won't be the people who were raptured. Uh, after verse three i do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture but you know there are people who are converted following the rapture there are going to be believers around the time of you know what's being uh described in chapters 15 and 16 because there will be people left on the earth after the rapture who had you know prior to the rapture they'd heard about it and they thought that christianity was a joke and some people will be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together put two and two together and they won't think it's a joke any longer. You know, they won't They won't think it's a joke any longer once we've been raptured. And so because they will understand what's going on, they will accept Christ. For this, those are the people who are going to be persecuted. So those are the people, you know, you find being persecuted throughout the book of Revelation. So as long as somebody becomes a follower of Christ before his return, before his rapture, my understanding of Scripture would lead me to say that you have nothing to worry about, that the security of your salvation really you know, has, has nothing to do with this passage here, and so that doctrine doesn't really pertain to this part of Scripture. The next email or uh, message that I want to address was actually posted on uh, org by Didymus, and what he wrote is um, basically, I believe a person can apostatize, Uh, When you began, you cited the law of non-contradiction, but you left out the qualifiers. One cannot say of something that it is and that it is not in the same respect and at the same time. When you say that one cannot both be able to and be unable to lose one's salvation, you have to make sure you are speaking in the same respect. I totally agree that there is no sin so large that Christ's blood does not cover it. But the believer still must believe. So as far as losing one's salvation due to one's sin, I agree that will not happen. However, a believer who ceases to believe is in the same position as one who never believed. He is an unbeliever. His sin is not covered. Now, first of all, I want to address the allegation that, that I was off on you know what I said about the law of non-contradiction. When I invoke the law of non-contradiction in reference to the security of one's salvation, what I mean is that, It's illogical to affirm and simultaneously deny the assurance of our salvation. I do mean this in the same sense and at the same time. And let me give you an example of a statement which violates the law of non-contradiction. For example, so to say it is impossible for the believer to lose their salvation, but, you know, let's say Joe, but Joe was a believer who fell away and lost his salvation. For me to say that is actually just totally meaningless, because first, I'm affirming that salvation cannot be lost, and then I'm giving an example of someone who was a believer but lost their salvation. So either salvation can be lost or it cannot. I am saying that it cannot, and Didymus here is saying that it can. So it has to be one or the other. Either somebody can lose their salvation in any way or they cannot. And so that's what I'm trying to defend here, is is that somebody can't lose their salvation. So let's go on and uh, continue reading what, what he wrote here. He said, one of the verses you cited was the one where Christ promises to acknowledge those who acknowledge him. But the very next verse, he promises to deny anyone who denies him. So let's address that very quickly. That comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Let's go ahead and read those very quickly. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 says, "Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven." And verse 33 says, "But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven." Now, the first thing you should notice here is that there is a parallelism. These verses run parallel to each other, so you can know that there is a contrast being made between the two sentences. But I have a few points of contention here uh, that I want to address. First of all, if we take verse 33 here as you have, that whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If we take that verse the way you have, then Peter lost his salvation on the night of Christ's betrayal, since he did deny Christ before men. Also, if we take verse 33 here as you have, it yields absolutely no possibility, no potential for salvation once one denies Christ. After all, you know, Jesus didn't say here that if denying him is the last thing you do, that he will deny you before the Father. What he said is, if you deny me before men. But when are we talking about here? Are we talking about denying him prior to conversion are we talking about denying him at some point after we've been converted and then going back and forth? I mean, if we take this verse literally, what he's saying is anyone who ever denies the Father. But we can't take it that way, because that would completely contradict the whole message of the gospel. But I am going to get back to that point here in just a minute. See, I take I take verse 32 to mean, therefore, everyone who ever confesses me before men I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But first of all, you know, we have all denied Christ at some point. Every single one of us denied him prior to conversion. We also deny him every time we sin. By your understanding of this passage, nobody, nobody is going to be confessed before the Father because we have all denied him. It says, whoever denies me before men. Well, you can put me in that category because I have denied him before. But before I go any further, let me just raise a couple more points of contention. First of all, it's dangerous to base your doctrine or your beliefs on one or two passages in Scripture. I think that the fundamentals of Christianity are repeated over and over and over throughout Scripture so that one or two verses, you know, such as these, isn't misunderstood, they're not misconstrued or misinterpreted. Also, you're using two verses to trump several. Is it possible for one verse in the Bible to be more true than another? No, it's all the inspired word of God. The measure for truth is not our understanding of a statement or verse, but rather the measure of truth is based on the degree to which a statement or verse corresponds to reality. If God really inspired something, I would judge it to be 100% true. So if God inspired one verse, which seems to indicate a security of salvation, and another one which seems to indicate the ability to lose salvation, you know, something has to give there. St. Augustine wrote that if we find two verses that seem to be contradictory, either our copy of the Bible is bad, or our understanding of what's being said our interpretation is bad, but scripture scripture doesn't contradict itself, and it can't because it's the word of God, so it is infallible. But let's go back to to what Didymus was uh, was saying here. He says, "So is it possible for someone to stop believing?" Numerous verses would seem to preclude it, but many others seem to affirm it. Different people reconcile the verses differently. My understanding from a reading of the scripture without predetermined theological ideas is that verses warning. One to persevere, abide, endure, hold fast, etc., speak clearly to a responsibility to continue in the faith. And to that, this is a very, very dangerous statement that, that you just made. Scripture cannot mean one thing for one person and something else for another. There is one meaning to Scripture. Language has a specific meaning. And the only correct interpretation of a passage or verse is what the author intended to communicate to the audience, not how you interpret it. Now, whether or not they were successful in communicating clearly, that's another question. But if a given sentence has multiple meanings, which are determined by the reader and not the author, then you may as well say that language has no meaning. But, you know, to say that language has no meaning is a self-defeating statement, since by saying that language has no meaning, you're trying to say something that has meaning. So you can't say that language has no meaning if you're trying to say something that has meaning. You get what I mean? (laughs) When you say that different people reconcile the verses differently, you know, I understand that people have different interpretations of Scripture, but Verses have only one meaning. There's only one meaning there, and that's what God was trying to convey through the authors of the Bible. So, whether people reconcile them differently or not is completely irrelevant. And just to everybody, you know, don't think that, you know, scripture is there for you to interpret, you know, however you want to. That's how cults get started. If it's valid for people to interpret different verses differently, then there's nothing wrong with how Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, interpret scripture. But let's go back to what Didymus was saying here. He says, I think the best analogy is that of the vine. As long as one remains in Christ, he is like a branch attached to the vine and reaps all the benefits of being in the vine. He who has the Son has life. If one ceases to believe, he is not abiding and does not partake in the benefits of the vine. He is cut off and destined for the fire. Eternal life is in the Son, the vine, and I receive it as soon as I am grafted in. I have eternal life. But if I do not abide in the vine, I no longer have eternal life. Thus, I can both have and not have eternal life, just not at the same time." Well, first of all, what you're saying here is first you have eternal life, then you don't. Well, your life wasn't eternal if you lost it. Your life was temporal if it only lasted for a time but let's go ahead and address the verses that you've uh, that you've mentioned here. You know, I believe that you have misunderstood what Jesus meant when he talked about the importance of being in the vine and how those who are not in the vine will be destroyed by uh, will be destroyed in the fire. And of course, this comes from the fifteenth chapter of John. Uh, you see, in in verse four here, John writes, "Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide." in me. And first of all, I want to point out that this verse says nothing in terms of loss of salvation. All it's affirming is that if a believer, that is a branch, does not stay in the vine, and that's Jesus, the branch will bear no fruit. The fact that God desires for us to bear fruit is actually mentioned eight times total in this chapter. You find that uh, twice in verse 2, twice in verse 4, Uh, And then 5, 8, and 16. And as we read through this chapter, we should immediately notice in verses 2 through 5 that there's actually a progression of bearing fruit. There's fruit. Uh, In verse 2, there's more fruitful also in verse 2, and then there's much fruit in verse 5. And the fact that this is being repeated should tell you something. This is about bearing fruit. That's what this passage is about. But the the verse that you're really bringing into question here is uh, chapter 15, verse 6 of John, which says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now this verse is a little more controversial than than the last one. There are three ways in which this verse has been uh, been interpreted usually. First is that the burned branches represent Christians who have lost their salvation and consequently go to hell. Um however, remember scripture can't contradict itself and this verse seems to be in conflict with the verses that I mentioned last week. So I'm not sure that we can take this uh take this interpretation. Um the second interpretation is that the burned branches represent Christians who will lose their rewards, but not their salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's supported by uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, which says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Um, and I don't think this is accurate either, because the branches are thrown away and wither. That's what Jesus says. And I just personally don't see how this could be referring to uh, to reward. So I reject that interpretation outright. And the third interpretation is that the burned branches refer to people who profess to be followers of Christ with their lips, but are not really saved. And thus, you know, like a dead branch, they're dead, and they will be punished in fire, And this is the view that actually that I hold of this verse. And the source of confusion here, I think, is the Greek word meno, which is translated as abide here. However, you know, I'm not sure that this is a good translation of meno because meno can also mean dwell. It actually has several meanings. And the term abide implies that one must not only dwell, but continue to dwell as well contextually i don't think it should be you know necessarily understood either way since jesus said you know just a chapter prior less than a chapter prior do you not believe that i am in the father and the father is in me the words that i say to you i do not speak on my own initiative but the father abiding in me does his works notice that the father is abiding in him is there any sense in which god the father can be taken out of jesus no you know so just a few sentences later here in in chapter 15, I believe Jesus is using the word meno in the same sense. The only way that someone doesn't, you know, quote unquote, abide or meno in Jesus in this sense is if they never truly have their faith in him to begin with. And John uses the word actually again in chapter 14, verse 16, when Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever and meno here is translated as be with you so of course this is speaking of the holy spirit but this actually gives us another verse supporting the assurance of salvation it says he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever if he's going to be leaving you if there's any chance of him not being with you then it wouldn't make sense for it to say forever it would say he will be with you as long as you persevere that's not what it says it says he will be with you forever And it just wouldn't make sense to say that the Holy Spirit would be with us forever if it were possible for him to leave us, or for us to kick him out, for that matter. So if we're being honest with the text here, based on the way minnow can be translated, this verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 6, could also be translated as saying, if anyone is not with me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, etc., and I think that's supported by uh, John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, which say that you know nobody can take believers out of his hand. Nobody can take believers out of his hand. And that supports the notion that once we are with him, we will never be without him. Uh, another point that I want to reiterate here is that the book of Hosea serves as a perfect illustration of how God's faithfulness toward us is not based on our faithfulness toward him. We are, all, we are continually unfaithful to him. We sin all the time. And every time we sin, every time we do something that we're not supposed to do, we're being unfaithful to him. We're denying him because he is continually wanting us not to sin you know and the principle of god's faithfulness is also affirmed in second timothy chapter uh, 2 verse 13 as well which says if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself again why can't he deny himself because he became one with us when we accepted the gospel we became the bride of christ we became one with him and so if he denies us he's really denying himself And just one last thing that Didymus wrote here is he said, I feel that those who believe in eternal security are all quick to label contrary verses as hypothetical and to label every case of apostasy as they never really believed in the first place, not based on evidence, but on a commitment to a theological position. And I won't deny that I am sold pretty much on this theological position, but I will also say that when I came to seminary, I was sold on your position, and I was convinced otherwise. But... You know, there are hypotheticals, and Jesus spoke in parables, which are basically hypotheticals. In the parable of the sower, he said that some seeds would appear to take root, and that's basically what you're seeing here. That is a hypothetical. And so when somebody says, well, you know, maybe he was just a seed that didn't take root, they're not blindly speaking hypothetically. They're referring to something that Jesus himself said would happen. But whatever the case, one thing I want to stress in closing here is that even though as Christians, you know, we might not agree on doctrines sometimes, we might not agree with each other, and that's fine. But you know what? The important thing is that we love each other because that's exactly what Christ commanded us to do. It's easy to love somebody who loves you, it's not easy to love somebody who disagrees with you necessarily. But I want you to know, Didymus, I love you like a brother in Christ. I thank you so much for bringing this letter forward because I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who actually were confused about these verses. And maybe I haven't resolved it. Maybe I have. I don't know. I've tried to defend it to the best of my ability. But, uh, you know, I hope that this is all in good spirit and that there's no ill will. There's no bad blood uh, because I do appreciate you writing in. And that's all the time that we have for today. Justin will continue his study on Friday. Matt will be continuing his study on alleged Bible contradictions tomorrow. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Have a nice three-day weekend if you have three days off this weekend, and I will see you all next week. God bless you, and thank you so much for listening.